Welcome back. Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. We are live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650, 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. It is Ask Us Anything Friday. We have two pairs of tickets to give away uh, for Vancouver FC's match on August 6th against Valor FC. One pair will go uh, to the best what we learn submission. One pair will go to the best Ask Us Anything. That is best as judged by A-Dog. So text in if you want to win those tickets now. He will choose them going into the final segment of the show. Again, that's, oh, include the ticket emoji in your text if you want to be eligible to win. Again, that is August 6th coming up here, 2 p.m. kickoff against Valor FC at Willoughby Community Park at the Langley Event Center. Uh, And we will talk to the Vancouver FC coach, Afshin Gottby, at 8 a.m. We got a lot to get to in this segment. We're going to do some Ask Us Anythings. We got some more Robert Sala uh, audio to play. I did what we were talking about Canada soccer in that last segment, and uh, this person texts in. Is it ridiculous? It's called revenue versus expenses. Take a finance course. (laughs) And I responded in the inbox, yes, they don't have enough revenue to cover their expenses. That's not where you want to be typically uh, as a business. I'm not a finance expert, but my understanding is that's bad. Uh, And then this response comes in, uh, maybe the players should have won more so there was more revenue. The women are defending gold medal champions at the Olympics. The men just made their first World Cup after winning CONCACAF qualifying in 35 years. If you can't make money off of those circumstances, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable saying you are the problem, not the players. The players are doing winning. The players are doing just fine. Yeah, I know there's been some hiccups from the men's team since then. But relative to the standard of soccer in this country, the men are at a level we have never seen before. The women, as I said, they've always been strong. They're the defending gold medal champions. This is not about the players needing to be better. This is all about Canada soccer being incompetent and not being able uh, to have the revenue to cover their basic expenses. Again, not a finance expert, is he? But pretty <laughs> no, sure. Nor it's, am I. But pretty sure it's bad when you don't have enough on revenue. the women's side in particular. A team that has been a consistent contender at the Olympics and have gone into World Cups with some degree of expectations. Mm-hmm. They have felt this way for a decade. Oh yeah, that they are not. That there is there is a gap between the expenses being put into resources to further development to keep teams competitive. This is while it is international sport, it is national teams. It is not club or franchises where mm-hmm. teams can dictate how much they want to put into their team. There are some other, you know, levers and hurdles that come with being a national governing body. But that said, it's still no different than trying to compete at a club level. Uh, you hear this, this is one of my favorite, you know, small things about sports, like a, a, like a, a sidebar story, is going through the incentives for Olympic athletes from their right. Olympic committees where the U.S. compensates their Olympic athletes for winning medals to a great degree. And then some of the smaller countries, like, you're a bronze medalist, you get a washing machine. 
Like they, they, <laughs> there are things at that level where the gap between the, the big countries and the like small countries. Like you're on countries. Price is Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's a bronze medal. Yeah, you get a washing machine. There, I like. I'll during the break maybe I'll pull up some of my favorite ones because Sports Illustrated used to collect them ahead of the Olympics and publish the list of what they could find of the incentives for that. But this isn't quite the same, obviously, with Canada soccer. But it is how the women have felt for a long time that they are they are just not getting the same kind of resources that they need to stay competitive, keep afloat. Keep pace with, I mean, you know, their big rival, the Americans, where they have a program. And that's a, that's a program that's been very successful in marketing, in making their team a big deal. The U.S. women's national soccer team is a big deal. Oh, yeah. And in Canada, there have been strides made there. Uh, you're seeing more players show up in things like advertising. They're becoming more of a household name. But it's a far ways off. Uh, the Americans, and as we, we said this yesterday as we were breaking down the World Cup, um, and Carl Lang was on with us talking about you know, a, a team like Spain when she played 10 years ago was not Nothing. on the map. Yeah. And now Spain is pushing, and there are other countries in Europe that are pushing. If Canada wants to sort of maintain its place as a top 10 team, a top 5 team, a team that can win a gold medal, it's going to take <laughs> more support and... It's maybe cynical to say, but the number one thing is financial support. That's the way this works. Uh, the texter responds, have you gone through the financial statements? Do you realize how little corporate sponsorship is out there? It's their job to get corporate sponsors. That's the whole thing. You can't throw your hands up and say, oh, poor us. Nobody wants to sponsor us. It's your job to get corporate sponsorship. That's what everyone's complaining about, that they're bad at their job, that they're bad at maximizing revenue through things like corporate sponsorships. That's the whole thing. That's not the player's fault. That's Canada soccer's fault. Uh, all right. We played uh, Robert Sala a little bit earlier, him responding to Sean Payton, uh, saying that uh, if you don't have haters, you ain't popping. But there's even more pearls of wisdom from the Jets head coach. Uh, and I wanted to to make sure we get this in. So do you want to set this up, Laddie, or should should we just play it blind? Yeah, like, I don't want to play the entire minute and a half sure. long ramble by <laughs> Coach Sala, but... Uh, let's listen to the – he does an analogy of when there's people attacking you and coming at you, the haters that he's talking about, when you're popping. Yes, when you're popping, you got them. Uh, he we went on, that. and <laughs> just just listen to this one. There's a lot of people who are hating on us. There's a lot of people looking for us to fail. There's a lot of crows pecking at our neck. Uh, but all you can do is spread your wings, keep flying high until those crows fall off and suffocate from the inability to breathe. It's a whole other analogy I'll get into later. Sometimes I'll start a sentence, and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. That's a whole other analogy I'll get into I'll get later. To later. I hope there's a follow-up question it. about that. End of the press. No, please, uh, in week four when they play the Broncos, the first question at the press conference. Coach, it's uh, week four of the season. Uh, can you give us an update on how high you're flying and whether or not those birds that are trying to keep up to you are suffocating? Please elaborate on that quick analogy. Quick follow-up, Coach. Could you get into that analogy a little more? You did promise us an update on that analogy. Anything, anything to add? Is this I'll like the elephant later. eating an elephant? I was going to say, like, there's something about coaches and animal metaphors. Like talking, talking, listening to that hit. He's like, ooh, that's good. I'm running this down. Seriously, <laughs> <Like> scribbling, bringing <laughs> a bunch of crows into the dressing room. So there's a lot of crows pecking at your neck. All you can do is spread your wings and fly higher. They fall down 
and for some reason suffocate. Due to the suffocating. Yeah, because yeah, if you get high enough, there's no oxygen, obviously, and you have a trouble breathing, so the crows won't breathe because you're too high and there's no oxygen and they fall over. I get it. But get but it. you get but you're high enough that you're for some reason you're able to breathe. Maybe you've got an <laughs> oxygen mask. I don't know. We gotta we gotta like uh we gotta just get more detail. This is a, just a bigger bird. Are you in a space this suit or this like is how why. are you breathing up there? I don't understand. Like we, we need a I really need to follow up with this. Oh, guy. This, is, this is why he's gonna get more into it. Yeah, he, uh, he recognizes that we all have questions. If the crows are suffocating, would you not also be? That's the thing, right? Yeah. And he's like, don't worry, guys. I know it's confusing. I'll tell you more about it later. I would love that's the only also, question he gets the rest of the year. I'm not just going to leave you hanging here. How, I'm going to fill you in. How determined are these crows? <laughs> They're going with you all the way up to the top until they suffocate. Man, that's those crows are really getting at you. If, uh, yeah. It's uh, <laughs> that's I, a I strong heard that this morning for the first time, and I... Just knew instantly we had to play it on the show. Uh, that is a very, very good one. Uh, all right. We're going to get into some Ask Us Anythings here. 650, 650 to the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, this one comes in from Dan in Fort St. John. He says, Ask Us Anything. Uh, it's a hypothetical here. So he says, let's say BioSteel comes out with a new miracle drink that lets NHL players stay on the ice for the entire game. So basically think about playing like an NHL game with line changes off. Which team benefits the most this season? He says the Oilers might be an easy answer, but I think it makes the Lightning the cup favorite. So he's basically saying which team could put out the best five-man unit. Right. You don't have to worry about depth. It's just your best five players or your best three forwards and your best two defensemen, unless you want to get really spicy and go four and one. Four and one, let's yeah. go. <laughs> Maybe the Leafs would do that. But – which team can put out the best five-man unit? I mean, obviously, if you can keep McDavid and Dreisaitl on the ice, you're doing pretty well. You're keeping them on the ice for the entire game. Uh, you're doing very well. Tampa's an interesting one. The one that jumped to mind for me, Colorado. Now, I know Landis Cog's going to miss the whole season, mm -hmm. but you got McCarr and Taves on the blue line. You load up with McKinnon, uh, Rantanen, and then whoever you want in that last spot, whether it's Nichushkin, whether it's uh, Arturi Lekkinen, Ryan Johansson's there, whoever you want. That is a pretty formidable uh, group of five. I will say, actually, like the Canucks would fare pretty well because you'd have, I think where they still fall short compared to a lot of the elite teams is the the depth, not even at the bottom the of the middle roster, part but like the, the middle roster, part of the sure. roster, right? Because, but if you could have the high end, if you could have, you know, Elias Pettersson at center, load up and put JT Miller on the wing, where I think he's more effective anyways, uh, Quinn Hughes and somebody... Carson Soucy or Ian Cole on the blue line. I know they're not an elite piece like that. Well, but I mean, you seen could, how you Quinn could play Hironic too. You could play Hironic there. It's a good point because you don't have to worry. about Yeah, the all of a sudden pair. you've got Quinn Hughes and, and Hironic out there like that. I think the Canucks stack up pretty well relative to a lot of other teams uh, in this in this uh, thought experiment. Yeah, I mean, a text comes in. It's obviously the Oilers. The amount that McDavid I, I think can just is. drive play with Drysaitel uh, yeah. is overwhelming. Uh, it's. I mean, you just look at their power play how dominant it was last season. Now they have Matthias Ekholm as you would, I would play him as their number one D and sure you, whatever you want to put Evan Bouchard there. He's probably the, the pick now and the, mm -hmm. they play together. Who you, I guess you probably put Zach Hyman it's with so unfair. Yeah. And McDavid. It's so unfair. It's irritating. Like it's, that's how, an, <laughs> that's how good it is. It's just, it's annoying. Like their power play is just stupid good. Yeah. It's like Harlem Globetrotter style. They oh, scored they more than one goal per game on the power play. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Like no defense. 
Uh, this text comes in. Jack and Luke Hughes on the ice for 60 minutes would be exhausting. I did think about New Jersey. It's an interesting one. I don't know if they would be the best, but they might be the most fun. They might be the most fun. And again, in this scenario, you could load up. You could probably play Jack Hughes on the wing, uh, put Nico Heischer at center, get uh, Timo uh, Meyer. Yeah, Timo Meyer or Brat on the, on the other wing. And then you'd have Dougie Hamilton. And you could put whoever you want there kind of as that as that fifth player. That would be a pretty impressive one. Uh, as well, but yeah, I do think. I mean, I do think it's Edmonton. Um, this ten, this one uh, says Tyler. Just because you have the the top five, the other team does too. Bad goalies are going to get lit up in this scenario. So I think he's he's voting against the Oilers there because they don't have the goal. You, in Tyler's estimation, if the opposing team has their five best players on the ice all game, it's even more important to have a really good goalie. I will say with the Oilers. You're just not getting the puck. You're not getting the puck from them if they have McDavid and Dreisaitl on the ice uh, all game. So I think I'd still probably go uh, with the uh, with the Oilers in this one. Uh, more Ask Us Anythings coming in here. Uh, this one was from Justin and Eastman. Hashtag Ask Us Anything. If you could choose any video game world to live in, where would you live? That's tough because most video game worlds extremely violent and unpleasant. Yes, I actually I would not violent, choose Grand, Grand Theft Auto. No, yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was like thinking Super Mario at one point, but I don't know. Like he's that always, was the first one. He's that always came to running mind from me. stuff and dodging fireballs. I think that'd be very strange. It's very yeah. pretty though. It uh, is. I was asked this on Twitter. I think it might have been by Justin, but it became this big thing where everyone started breaking it down. And the the consensus I seemed to get was Animal Crossing. Have you heard of this? Sure, this yeah, game? that's yeah. a good one. This little peaceful farm-like simulator where you raise a village. There's absolutely nothing that can kill you in this game. I think the worst things are tarantulas. Yeah. You faint if you see them. Like that's like <laughs> this is like the safest possible environment to be in. And as soon as somebody mentioned that, okay, it's got to yeah. be animal. Sims gotta is low be key dangerous. The Sims, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the fires all the you time. You can drop People your Sims die. in an empty. You, 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 you can drop you your Sims locked in, an, in a windowless, yeah. doorless room and drop left, your Sims in an empty, starve? empty pool what about and take out coaster the... tycoon. <laughs> Lots of people die in Roller Coaster Tycoon. Yeah, Roller, 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 roller Coaster Tycoon is a murder simulator, so that would not be the one I would what choose. What about Pokemon? Nothing, uh, nothing kills you in the world of Pokemon. I guess it's just the, the, the Pokemon fight. You, you faint. You don't die yeah, in the like world Animal of Pokemon. Crossing. And Pokemon seems like pretty chill. You're just walking around. Yeah, what is it? The, fighting can, the, Pokemon? the Kanto region? Is that what it's called? Wow, one of them. Yeah. Wow, nice. Yeah. I would love, love to live. Shout out to the Kanto region. I'm, I'm moving to Pallet Town. <laughs> There is a game that's kind of similar to Animal Crossing that came out a few years ago, Stardew Valley, which is like a farming simulator. Yeah, you just it's, live it's, in like a quaint little town correct. and, and have like your that. farm and like there's no there are things Very that can relaxing. kill you, but you don't have to see them. You just can like are grow some games, turnips. What about sports oh, games? Yeah. MLB the show? You yeah, just get just to be in a ballpark twenty four seven. There, that, there's kind of like a horror to that though too. You can never leave the ballpark. This existential yeah, terror. I, I guess some of these hot dogs for some life. Some of these games animal, encompass but, towns. Yeah, right. Well, so do people die in MLB the show? Bars and restaurants, and oh, you know, you can you can go out <laughs> to things. There's bars and restaurants at ballparks. That's true, but you're stuck at the ballpark. Well, you just get you just uh, you get to watch Shohei Otani twenty four seven. That sounds like um, like a Twilight Zone episode where it's like, oh, you think you like baseball, do you? <laughs> well, now you live at the ballpark all the, all the time. Have all the baseball in the world. <laughs> uh, this one per- this one says Zelda because I like the outdoors. Too much danger in Zelda, and yeah, not very and no modern conveniences. That's true. Like I can understand the romantic attraction. It's like, oh, it'd be cool, but it's like I would rather have indoor plumbing. That's yeah. a that's a baseline expectation. Yeah. for me. Uh, so, all the pottery you could smash, though. Just get all your frustrations out. That's a great point. 
Don't even look at chickens the wrong way. You will die. <laughs> Think of all the coins just lying around on the ground. You don't need yeah. to work. You just go yeah. cut some grass. You and... don't need to take that finance course. <laughs> no, I wouldn't need to take that finance course. Uh, not in the world of Zelda. Uh, yeah, but there's not a lot of really appetizing, enticing video game worlds. No, in general, vi- video games are trying to kill you. They're so trying to kill are mo- you. Most of the time. Or you're trying they're, not... to, they're trying to kill you, and frequently you're trying to kill other people, which yes, I don't so... really want any part of that either. Yeah, yeah. Video game don't worlds put... usually aren't super relaxed. Don't put that on me. Don't make me uh, partake in that. Uh, Adam, the former bath guy, ask us anything. You're given $10 million cash, but there's a catch. A snail is chasing you for the rest of your life. And if it touches you, you die a terrible death. The snail cannot be killed, and it knows your location at all times. Its only purpose is to find you. Are you taking the money? That's from Adam, the former bath guy. Of of snails. (laughs) Yeah. It's got a particular very particular set of skills, which is killing you. To make you have a terrible death. Finding you and killing you. Um, I would take the money because I was thinking about this. You can outwit the snail, right? Like, you can put the snail in a lockbox, you know, with your $10 million, rent a boat, take it out to the ocean, drop drop that lockbox. But how, what if the snail, what if one of the abilities is it always appears right by you? Well, okay, that was even if it's moving, it's a magic change. Even if it's moving incredibly slowly, you blink for one second. Oh my God, it's right by your feet. So you're always dodging the goddamn snail. Then you can't sleep. No, no, then it's out. If that's part, that was a magical Liam Neeson snail. (laughs) That wasn't specified. Like you, you, you open the door one morning to your apartment, the snail's just there waiting for you. Yeah, no, then I'm out. This is a regular yeah. size snail as well. I assume so, not a giant snail. That would be terrifying. <laughs> but a snail you can see and you can say, oh, man. If that's the case, right, if it can defeat me outwitting it and me, you know, placing it at the bottom of the ocean. you're so smart, this, Jamie. You know how I to can outwit, outwit a, snail. a snail. Does this snail obey the laws of physics? Yes. Because if not, you're screwed. I would just carry a hockey stick with me and then shoot it. Every no, time I got no actually, the answer is it. that you just got to keep flying because the snail's going <laughs> to suffocate. It's going to be trying to peck at your neck. <laughs> no, but if the snail's magic and it can come back from wherever, then you can't. There's no amount of money that makes that worth it because you're just looking over your shoulder yeah. the entire time. If you ain't right? got no snails, you ain't popping. Yeah, <laughs> the snail knows you're snails. popping. Well, that's why he's hating. This person texts in, it's not worth it. You'd always be worried about the snail. Not if it was at the bottom of the ocean. If it's at the bottom of the ocean in a lockbox. I think the snail would get into your head eventually, though. No, uh-uh, it would no way. About that it would become this big thing. No way. Wake up before I'm snail. No, I'd be totally fine with it. And it's the, at least then, let's say it did theoretically. The worst situation would be worrying about it all the time, right? But I think I would I think I would be able to put it out of my mind, right? Once it's at the bottom of the ocean. And even if by some, you know, freak freak accident it escaped and came to find me, at least it would I wouldn't be I wouldn't be dreading it. And I'd have a certain number of years to enjoy my money. And then it's like, well, okay, I got, I had a good run. Okay. The snail, fair play to the snail for okay. getting out and getting me. Okay, scenario though, you're going to work, you get in the elevator, you work at the 24th floor, elevator doors close, you look to your left, snail's right there. You I can't, mean, not great. What do you do? You're going to die. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. because you can kind of like, the snails move so slowly, you can move around the elevator and kind of dodge it. <laughs> Imagine security camera footage. Can you that? touch its slime, its slime trail? Nah, Does that, that kill you? That's part of the That snail. might be the worst part, yeah. That's right. We're reading a little too much into that. So the game is basically, <laughs> the snail is basically like 
the old game Snake, where it's like tail. You're Adam trying to former, dodge the trail. Out of the tail. former bath guy, the Oppenheimer meme, he's like, what have I done? Oh, good point. Somebody in the text box said, you would be scared of all snails. Because you wouldn't know. You which, wouldn't know which yeah. snail. Every oh, snail. That's point, yeah. Well, that, unless, that's a good wrinkle. Unless you you could identify it, right? If it had an identifying mark on it in some way. <laughs> you just, just an unidentifiable You sneak up behind snail. and just put a sharp note would, on it. I was going to say, I would. You're an expert on before, snails now? No, no, no. Before I put it, this is a good point. Before I put it in the lockbox and dropped it into the bottom of the ocean, I would spray paint it. I would spray paint it pink. Barbie snail. Yeah. You're getting awfully close to this snail that will kill you if you touch it. Yeah, but it's not, it can't make sudden movements. It's not like a snake that's going to lunge out at you <laughs> and touch you. It's like, you can feel pretty confident. I think I can't anyways. Uh, this one says also, uh, but he'd figure out a way. He'd figure out a way out. It's his only job. <laughs> I don't. I, I also. Think, I don't think. That's I think how you're it works. underestimating the help that might come from you know, the octopi. Adam, the former bath guy, needs to specify the degrees of powers this snail has. Like if it can kill you in one touch, it's got to be some sort of special snail. It's got to be able to do things normal snails cannot do. Otherwise, what's the point? So we need we need details. Yeah. I still think I would take it. I okay. I I um I need that money, guys. Jamie last forty five minutes. <laughs> yeah, as, the, <laughs> as the extent of my financial constraints have been revealed, I'm taking the ten million dollars yeah. and risking the magic snail. Let's yeah. let's put it that way. Uh, Canada so, soccer would take that deal. <laughs> Canada soccer's like, <laughs> give us the snail. It solves all our problems. <laughs> the snail. We'll take the snail. We'll take two. Yeah, two snails trying to kill us. Oh my goodness! Um, six fifty, six fifty. Lots of other things coming in. Uh, this one along the same lines. Ask us anything. Uh, would you rather walk barefoot or walk with a pebble in your shoe for the rest of your life? Pebble. Yeah, pebble. You get a callus eventually, and you won't notice it. You barefoot, can also lots of problems. Pebble. You can kind of. There's a pebble in your shoe. You know how you can kind of like angle it to the side so it's not as annoying. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can manage it. It's yeah. not great. Walking barefoot through the across it would be that'd be bad. Walking barefoot just takes too many places off the table. Yeah. Right? And like there's so much random stuff on the ground. And yeah, your feet, you know, you'd grow those calluses and everything, but it'd be nasty also. Your feet would I wouldn't be... want to walk downtown with Ugh. anything on. No, your feet not... would be fine just uh just completely nasty all the time. Yeah. So I, I think you gotta go Agreed. pebble. Agreed. As as annoying as it sounds, uh, I think you gotta go pebble. Uh, this one says, so I don't know if this is the same person who texted in the initial snail question. Uh, it's not, but he said the snail is turbo. So that's not an official. But what's turbo? You saying not an bolts? official part of the Well, then, because then you're just dead. <laughs> yeah. But that's not, I'm only going based on the original text, which didn't say anything about the snail being magic or turbo or being able to teleport. Just <laughs> teleport. said it's coming after you. <laughs> just said it's coming after you. Uh, somebody else texted in, we're really getting a window into Jamie's financial constraints today. Look, man. As as my financial constraints have been revealed, <laughs> Time, times are tough out there. Uh, 650, 650. Keep your Ask Us Anythings and your What We Learned submissions coming in. Some good ones in the inbox that we'll get back into throughout the course of the show. And as a reminder, A-Dog will choose the best What We Learned and the best Ask Us Anything. Uh, both are eligible to win a pair of tickets to the Vancouver FC match on August 6th. Again, we're giving away two pairs of tickets, one for the best what we learned, one for the best ask us anything. Text in, include the ticket emoji in your text. Uh, We will announce the winner in the final segment of the show. Up next, really interesting piece from Harmon Dial, our guy at The Athletic, talking about some of the the limitations or the lessons uh, 
from players that analytics, hockey analytics got wrong. We'll talk to him about that. Uh, and we will also talk to uh, Harmon a little bit about the Canucks coming up next segment here on Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650. The People's Show, your home for Vancouver summer sports talk. Subscribe to the podcast now. Welcome back. Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650 with Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair filling in. Halford and Bruff brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Uh, we are live from the Kintech Studio 650-650. Is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Keep getting in your Ask Us Anything questions, also your What We Learn submissions. Reminder, we have two pairs of tickets uh, to give away to Vancouver FC's match on August 6th. One pair for the best What We Learned, one pair for the best Ask Us Anything. Make sure you include the ticket emoji in your text. I would say right now, keep the Ask Us Anythings coming in. Uh, If you're looking to get those tickets, there's an open lane in the What We Learned submission uh, inbox because uh, not a ton of those in so far. So remember, one pair is going to go to the best what we learned. One pair is going to go to the best ask us anything. Get your texts in now. Uh, right now on the line, though, joining us, of course, he covers the Canucks and the NHL for the Athletic. He is our guy, Harmon Dial. Uh, Harmon, thanks for doing this. And I got to say, Izzy and I both very impressed that you are up and uh, and ready to talk to us at 730. Yeah, and it's funny too because it was uh, my friend's uh, birthday last night, so it it's it's been a it's uh, been a short sleep. All but right, I'm well we appreciate it. <laughs> You're a pro, buddy. We appreciate it, buddy. Thank you for doing this for us, and we're excited to have you on. You have a really we'll get into some Canuck stuff as well, but a really interesting piece up at the Athletic yesterday. The headline: Ten NHL players analytics were wrong about, and the lessons learned. And you know, I encourage people to go check it out because it is really fascinating. What was kind of the the motivation for you to get into this, and what were some of the the big picture takeaways you had from doing the whole exercise? Yeah, I, I think for me, I've always been a believer in analytics and have used them in my writing now and in my overall analysis for, geez, I want to say six years now. Mm-hmm. And in that time, as you use use them more and more, of course, you make mistakes in the beginning, and you. I mean, you always make mistakes. Hopefully you make more of them in the beginning and you learn from them and make fewer of them in uh, the future. And I just feel like I've learned a lot in terms of how to use them and how not to use them, what context needs to be applied. And ultimately, there was a fantastic comment in uh, the comment section of, uh, of that article, which I wrote, which I wrote that said there are two people who are two types of people who are absolutely wrong about analytics. Number one, the person who puts zero stock or sees zero value in them. And number two, the person that solely relies on them. And I think that just hit the nail on the head because one thing that as analytics become a lot more popular and, and have really exploded and you see so many even on Twitter now, player gets signed, player gets traded. You have these statistical, uh, a player statistical uh, profile card sort of going viral on Twitter. And I just think it's important to sort of recognize the blind spots, recognize the limitations of analytics, um, and ultimately realize because back in the day, the debate used to be 
eye test versus analytics. And at this point, it's like you need both, clearly. Um, and when you go through some of the examples um, in that article, I think there were a few key takeaways. Um, the so, Some of the most important ones were, number one, defensemen especially are really hard to evaluate because the team environment has such a significant um, impact on an individual defenseman's analytics. Uh, so you could be, let's say, the the classic example I gave was uh, Vladislav Gavrikov. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when he, around the time of the deadline, was on Columbus, um, and he was being discussed about as a potential sort of trade deadline acquisition, and he had future analytics in Columbus um, this past season. But then I, I know from my experience, and, and having been wrong about these types of players enough, to go ask the next question of, okay, those are the results, but why? And that's where you dive deeper into the context, and it's like, okay, Zach Gorenzi's out, and this guy's uh, a second-pair defenseman, essentially playing number one minutes on a really bad team. He's being asked to carry a sub uh, subpar partner. He's starting so many shifts in his defensive zone, and ultimately he has very little two-way help from his forwards. Like, no wonder he's being caved in and, and not doing well. Um, and, of course, I remember at the time, the you know, people looking at uh, his underlying numbers and Gavrikov getting bashed. And, and even just from watching him enough, I was like, he's, he's not a world-beater defenseman, but I, I think he could be a quality second-pair guy. Um, and that's a perfect example. If guy gets moved to L.A. and all of a sudden he's the perfect fit for the Kings, his analytics are amazing with L.A., and it's like, there you go. That's an example of the environment changes and a guy's numbers and what you thought of him um, totally flip. And, you know, that's a great example. The other case that's always fascinating with defensemen is the, let's say, classic number six defenseman who has amazing numbers. It's hit or miss in terms of whether that guy can replicate that success higher in the lineup. Um, there are guys in the past that just call Miller, um, when he was with Vegas, there are guys like Travis Dermott when he was in Toronto. Um, amazing numbers, but it's in sheltered minutes. He's, the guy's mostly playing against third and fourth lines. There's a reason the coach doesn't trust him defensively to defend against top six competition. Um, and that's a lesson you sort of have to be to be mindful of um, as well. And I, I just think overall, um, when when a model spits out results, yes, that's valuable information, but we need to ask more questions and dive deeper into what are the blind spots? What information are we missing? Uh, and uh, and make sure that we're really thorough about that instead of drawing sort of immediate rash uh, conclusions. And, and that's just something that I wanted to clarify because I've definitely made mistakes with that in the past. And um, because analytics are becoming more ubiquitous and are driving the mainstream conversation around players, I think it's important to just approach it with a more nuanced uh, perspective. One player that's on your list, Harmon, that's uh, close to home for Canucks fan was uh, Chris Tanev. Uh, what was the lesson there? You go back to uh, the, the offseason where he ultimately left Vancouver and signing with Calgary. Uh, I, I agree with the sentiment that you wrote at the time that uh, when that move went down, the, the thought was uh, that it was probably a pretty hefty contract for a guy uh, that his impact was 
obviously very big on the team and specifically Quinn Hughes, but uh, maybe we didn't realize just how big it was. What, what's the lesson that, that you got with Tanev uh, from, I guess, his side as a player, but also what it said about the Canucks? Yeah, again, that's a perfect example of what uh, a team sort of um, environment can can do for a defenseman because in his prime, there's no denying it, Tanev was an analytics darling, hands down one of the best shutdown defensemen in the NHL. Um, he's actually one of the first players that drew me towards value of analytics because I was like, this is it, these metrics are able to quantify Tanev's um, incredible sort of defensive skills in a way that traditional stats just aren't able to do. Um, and yet, I think when it came time to him being a free agent, it was really interesting because you looked at Tanev and I think you, in my case, I saw a player who was close to being 31 years old, uh, a guy who before that 2019-20 season had significant durability concerns. Like you look at the game's played totals and you're like, this guy's potentially injury-prone. He gets hurt every year. misses a significant chunk of the season. Um, he's a defensive, you know, obviously defenseman type that blocks a lot of shots, takes a lot of physical uh, punishment. So you wonder how the body's going to hold up even later in his, in his career. And you also saw the two-way metrics that um, weren't nearly what they were in the prime of his career. And so the combination of all those factors – I remember at the time sort of being like, you know what, a four or five year extension could be really risky. And um, the Canucks might, or, you know, might be wise here to move on and, and try and find another top four defenseman, a younger guy who could slot in maybe. And of course that, uh, that turned out to be a grave mistake for the Canucks and, and, you know, they were wrong. I was wrong. And in the case of Tanev at, at, at the time, as soon as he moved to Calgary, again, his, his, underlying numbers bounce back and he looked like such a fresher, more rejuvenated version of, of himself. And again, that goes back to, all right, Vancouver was a team that, okay, they were coming off a, uh, a good season overall, but that's still a team overall that at five on five struggled to control play a little bit. He had forwards that very talented offensively, but they don't help the defenseman out a lot. Um, and then he goes to Calgary, which they have consistently been a top 10 possession team and they're, they have more two way forwards that, uh, that are smarter and, and more helpful defensively. And, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's a much friendly environment. And with that sort of change of scenery, Tanev is looking like the prime peak version of himself again. Um, and so it just, again, goes to show that with defensemen, especially you've just got to be careful with the context that you, um, in making sure that you're applying enough contacts and that you have the complete picture when you're evalu evaluating a player, because uh, I think Tanev's a, a great example of it looked like he wasn't quite what he was in his prime, still a very good player. But then when you consider the potential term it would take to sign him, the injury risk, um, you know, you, you were scared off when in reality um, this organization would have been uh, much better off if uh, they had re-signed him. You know, one of the things that comes up a lot when we're talking about analytics in hockey is the comparison to other sports, and especially baseball, right? And baseball is kind of held up as the gold standard because of the nature of the game. It's very easy to have these really insightful advanced stats that can tell you a lot. And, you know, I even look at baseball, though, and Izzy and I were talking before the show, like, 
the advancements in kind of how we analyze the game of baseball in the last 10 years have been massive. There's so much more granular data now, whether it's spin rate or exit velocity or whatever it is, that the analytics conclusion about a player now versus 10 years ago might look very, very different. What do you think are those kind of next steps in the world of hockey analytics and advanced stats where we can go beyond our current understanding and, you know, even with with numbers, get a a much more accurate and and precise kind of understanding of player value? Yeah, I think for starters, if there's a way that um, some of these micro stats can be can become more ubiquitous. I know that for me, Corey Schneider does some amazing tracking, not the Canucks Corey Schneider. Uh, another Twitter <laughs> coordinator does a lot of um, tr- in the, uh, hand tracking of uh, things like zone exits, zone entries, um, how defensemen defends a rush. And that adds so much context. That adds so much um, uh, detail into, okay, a, a player might have, you know, whatever type of um, – numbers in terms of controlling player or whatever. And then those individual microstats can offer more specific insights into that, let's say defenseman's um, skill set, strengths and weaknesses, um, and give you a clearer window into, okay, if this, if let's say a defenseman has r- amazing numbers on a stacked possession team, and you're trying to figure out, okay, how much of those numbers are the defenseman being really good individually versus how much of it is, the team just being uh, amazing. That's where microstats can offer more insight into, okay, in that case, maybe the guy has amazing uh, breakout numbers and you can say, okay, this guy's genuinely driving the bus and that can give you more confidence or vice versa. Maybe the guy isn't um, driving a lot on zone exits, isn't driving a lot on zone entries and you go, okay, maybe he's a bit more of a passenger and you might be looking at, okay, who's his D partner. And, and again, applying more of that, that context. So I think the accessibility of microstats would be um, amazing if we could work towards that. And, and I think big picture, the next advancement that I'd like to see, I don't know how feasible it is um, on the public side, is metrics that better account for defensive play, uh, that can mm-hmm. quantify defensive impact uh, much better. I, I think that's the key difference in terms of why it's much easier to, I shouldn't say much easier, but I, yeah, I would say it is typically easier to um, have a more accurate picture of, let's say, a forward with analytics than it is with defensemen because it's hard to measure defense uh, analytically, statistically, uh, especially with the metrics that we have are still pretty – they're useful, but they're still a bit rudimentary. Uh, and I think that's where if we can get uh, more sophisticated data on – a player's uh, defensive impact and feel more confident in that, then I think that would go a long way in, um, in just even the data itself being uh, more useful, more insightful. The premise for your piece at the athletic were specifically lessons that, that you felt that you learned about specific players and, and specific situations, but a lot of them were reacting to moves that teams did or didn't make from that standpoint. What lessons do you think the GMs have learned the best from using analytics over the last few years? And where do you think their biggest blind spot remains? Yeah, it's a really good question because we don't necessarily have the best window into, yes, we know teams way and, and use analytics. And of course, some other, uh, some more than others, but it's 
tough to sometimes understand like, okay, when an individual move is made, how much of it was analytically driven versus how much of it was um, not, well, how much of it would like, how much did analytics maybe even not really factor into that acquisition at all? Uh, I'll give you a great example, right? Um, Jason Dickinson, when he was acquired from, um, from the stars, and this was around the time when uh, the Seattle ex- expansion draft was happening and Dickinson didn't fit on Dallas's protected list. And so that was their sort of impetus or reason for wanting to make him available. And the Canucks swooped in and were like, okay, this could be our defensive minded third line center. And, um, and with Dickinson, that's a great example of, okay, here's a player that at the time had stellar underlying numbers, especially defensively uh, in terms of the rate at which when he was on the ice, the stars were suppressing scoring chances. The Dickinson's defensive impact was like top 10 or top 20 in the NHL. Of course, pretty much nothing to offer offensively, but you looked at him and went, okay, he's a lot of redeemable defensive qualities. Um, but it wasn't just the analytics either, because I remember <clears throat> that season looking at um, that final year in Dallas, looking at the ice times and five and five stars were using him more per game than Jamie Ben and Ropa Hintz. So this wasn't just, Oh, analytics. This is uh, a darling here. And, and traditionalists, the eye test doesn't check out. It's like both were really high on Dickinson at the time as a potential sort of, um, third line uh, checking center, and yet he comes to Vancouver, and it was a disastrous fit. And again, I think that was a case of when you dive deeper into it, Dallas at the time, and it's different, they're a, almost a total 180 now, um, but at the time, Rick Bonus was the head coach, and they played this almost insufferably boring defensive system <laughs> where the goal was to have almost nothing happen when um you know when certain guys were were on the ice um they were just low event going to grind you down and dickinson was a unique that system was a uniquely perfect fit for dickinson i believe because here's a guy that has he's rangy he has some redeemable checking qualities it's no offense in this game and yet that's exactly what the, what the stars were outside of that amazing top line right um and and then, of course, Dallas was a really good defensive team as a whole. And I think when he went to Vancouver, where it was a 180 in terms of systems-wise, um, even the Canucks' overall defensive quality and, and structure, uh, it just it, it didn't materialize. Dickinson didn't have that same level of defensive impact. And, um, again, I think, okay, what does that mean for, for GMs and, and, and how they've been using analytics? Um Again, it's a little bit difficult to say because I, I, I don't know how, how they have weighed analytics so far and what role it has played in specific de- decisions. But I think overall the, the biggest sort of lesson is um, to sort of realize that when a player changes from one team to another, there are a lot of inputs and variables and factors, whether it's teammates, whether it's systems, um, whether it's um, you know line mates, uh, that change, and so you need to sort of think think really deep about the specific fit of a, of a player and um, in in how that change in environment could affect uh, the player's performance um, when you acquire them. 
Harmon, just before I let you go, I did want to touch on the Canucks specifically for a second. You know, there's been so much talk about the Canucks penalty kill over the last few years. Obviously, a lot of the moves they've made uh, are, are designed to address, at least in part, the penalty kill. How much better does it need to be for this team to be a legitimate playoff contender? In my opinion, it just needs to be competent, right? I'm not even banging the drum and saying that it um, needs uh, to be league average or something. I remember when Jantz and I sort of a couple weeks ago did our uh, piece of piece on what needs to go right for the Canucks to get back to the playoffs. The way we described it was just be in a normal range on the penalty kill. Like, just be somewhat normal on, on the penalty kill. You don't even need to be top half in the NHL because it's so interesting. This team has... Um, shot itself in the foot in the first month of the season and essentially killed their playoff chances uh, for three straight years in a row. And you go back and look, the, the PK in each of those years has been bad for the season as a whole, but you specifically zoom in on the first month of the season and last sort of um, um, the last season dead last in the NHL um, the year before dead last in the NHL for the first month of the season, penalty kill. The year before that, the 56-game shortened season, second last in the NHL. So you're talking about a penalty kill that, okay, why have the Canucks always had horrible starts? It's because at the start of the season, the penalty kill isn't just bad. It's, it, it, it's like historically awful. I mean, last season, it was around 60% in the first month of the season. There's, there's no way you can win hockey games like that. And, and even an improvement to a normal range is – such a steep improvement where you think about how many games the Canucks early in early in seasons have lost by just like a goal or two here, here, or there special teams so often were the difference in that. And um, you even think about the first road trip of the season where they just kept blowing leads, kept blowing leads. Well, season opener in Edmonton, they were up three, nothing. And what changed was in the second period, Edmonton scored a pair of power play goals and that keyed their comeback in, in a 5-3 uh, game. And that just set a horrible tone for the Canucks. For, the, for not only that road trip of the entire season in terms of blowing leads and even impacting, like, look, if you're blowing a ton of leads on the penalty kill, even if it's on the penalty kill, that's going to affect your psyche and your confidence as a defensive team at even strength, too. Like, that's just going to bleed over. That becomes a bigger problem of we can't hold leads in general and it's going to affect your confidence as opposed to if they'd somehow found a way to, let's say, close out the first game of uh, the season, hold that lead. How much does that help them confidence-wise yeah. for, the, for the future games on that road trip where they blew leads not only on the PK, but at even strength too, right? So I think just being in a normal range and, um, you know, that's, that's going to be critical. And um, it's, it's funny. They always start the season against Edmonton, which is kind of unfortunate because that's, um, you know, the best power play of, of all time. And they're starting a, starting the season, um, I believe, at least one, if not two games. I think, uh, it's a home home. And home. I think it's a home and home, I believe, to start the season against Edmonton. Yeah, yeah. so it's like, what a great what a, what a great uh, <laughs> test for the new PK guys. Just to slowly work them in. Here's Connor McDavid, Leo Dreisettle, and all these guys. So, um, I mean, that's going to be a really scary um, sort of initial test. And um, I'm curious to see how the new personnel stacks up. But... Uh, ultimately, I don't think they need a huge improvement. They just need to be somewhat competent. Yeah, I have a feeling we might see a lot of uh, penalty kill work from Rick Tockett at training camp because with those two games against the Oilers on the horizon. Uh, Harmon, great stuff as always, man. Thanks for getting up early for us. Uh, We'll let you go grab a nap here. 
Yeah, thanks, boys. <laughs> thanks, Harm. That is Harmon Dial of The Athletic. And again, the piece, uh, really, really interesting. Ten NHL players analytics were wrong about and the lessons learned. You can go read it now. Also has a Canucks mailbag up uh, at The Athletic right now where he talks a little bit about the PK and other things. Uh, but uh, yeah, fascinating kind of taking stock of where analytics is right now in the NHL and where it could go in the future. And obviously some uh, some pretty interesting Canucks-related examples there uh, to dig into in the piece as well. Uh, it is 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, up next, uh, we will talk to the head coach of Vancouver FC, currently playing their inaugural season in the Canadian Premier League. He is Afshin Gottby. Uh, we are giving away a pair of tickets to an upcoming Vancouver FC, uh, two pairs of tickets, excuse me, to an upcoming Vancouver FC game. So keep getting your What We Learn submissions and your Ask Us Anythings uh, in. We'll read more of them and the best of each submission. So one pair of tickets goes to the best What We Learned. One pair of tickets goes to the best Ask Us Anything. Make sure you include the ticket emoji in your text uh, and you can win a pair of tickets to the August 6th game between Vancouver FC and Valor FC at Willoughby Community Park. And we will talk to the head coach of Vancouver FC, Afshin Gopi, next here on Halford & Bruff Sportsnet 650.